the Jodcast, in the Habitable Zone, just with Adam Avison, Claire Bretherton, Fiona Healy, Indy Leclerc, Ian Morrison, and Mark Perver. The Jodcast, August 2014 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Adam Iverson and joining me in the studio this month and enjoying the air conditioning is Mark and Fiona. Hi, Hi Adam. Hey. Um, so before we get started with the show, I'd like to make a little plea on behalf of the uh, Jogcast team. We have this music at the beginning of the show and we've been using it forever and we've forgotten what it's called, who it's by. We know it's open source, so we're, we're free to use it. But what we'd like to know is if any of you talented listeners out there um, could transcribe the music or have a go at it and then send it to us in some sort of standard musical notation so that we know how to play it should we ever want to make weird and wacky versions of it. Does this mean you're going to play it? I will have a go. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't have the ear capability of doing the first bit. So. But you did a computerised version once, right? Yeah, but it wasn't very good. Maybe, <laughs> maybe listeners could send us their own renditions of it too, if they felt like oh, it. Oh, that'd be cool as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if, if, if you're feeling musical and, and want to give that a go, just let us know and then we'll try and accommodate that in the next couple of months. So that's my little plea out of the way, so let's go on with the show. In the show this time, Indy interviews Professor Elsio Abdallah about quantum field theory, Ian Morrison and Claire Bretherton take a look at what's happening in the August night sky. And we bring you some astronomical odds and ends. But first, before all of that, here's Indy with this month's news. In the news this month, Rosetta and the funny-shaped comet. Comets, leaving icy trails across the sky, have doubtless been noticed by humans for millennia. They were usually taken as bad omens, ominous signs in the sky warning of impending deaths. In 1577... Tycho Brahe measured the parallax of the Great Comet of that year, and in conjunction with observations by other astronomers, he managed to determine that the comet was at least four times further away than the Moon was, and that it was not, as was widely believed at the time, an atmospheric phenomenon. In 1705, Edmund Halley used a method from Newton's Principia to study past comets, fitting their orbits to parabolas. He found that three of the previously observed comets had very similar orbits to each other, and deduced that they were in fact one and the same. He also predicted that comet's return. This turned out to be, of course, the comet that came to be named after him, Halley's Comet, which is without a doubt the most well-known of these objects. It was realised that comets contained some sort of volatile material which would vaporise due to solar radiation, forming the characteristic tail that stretches across the sky. In 1950, the astronomer Fred Whipple proposed that comets were icy objects with some rock in them, as opposed to being rocky objects containing some ice, this was known as the so-called dirty snowball model. With the advent of the space age, a large number of probes and flyby missions were launched, and their observations appeared to support Whipple's model, although the final ratio of ice to rock in most comets is still up for debate today. A notable event was the study of Halley's Comet in 1986 when it passed into the inner solar system. A number of spacecraft, known as Halley's Armada, flew very close to the comet, including the ESA-craft Giotto, which got as close as 596 kilometres. Today, following in the footsteps of Giotto is the Rosetta mission. Launched in 2004, after almost 10 years of planning, this remarkable spacecraft has been making its way across the solar system, slingshotting around the Earth three times and Mars once, to get to comet 67P, also known as Churyumov-Gerasimenko, named after its discoverers. The spacecraft has just sent back the first images we have of the comet, before July 2014, the only picture the mission planners and scientists had was a single pixel wide, not very useful, and it makes it quite difficult to plan a landing. Thankfully, the Rosetta team now has access to a constant supply of images from the craft's onboard camera, with the first pictures being taken on July the 14th, and they were released to the public on the 21st. The Rosetta Twitter account is currently posting pictures of the comet each day, and as of the 25th of July, the probe was roughly 3,200 kilometres away from its goal with an anticipated rendezvous of the comet 12 days from then, on the 6th of August. The shape of the comet, however, came as a surprise to the observers. It seems to be composed of two differently sized parts, reminiscent of nothing more than a slightly deformed rubber duck. Planetary scientists call this type of object a contact binary, and while these have been seen before in asteroids, it's the first time that this shape has been confirmed for a comet. 
The formation mechanism behind the binary is still unclear. It's likely to have resulted from a merger, but whether the two pieces came from different sources or from the breakup of a single larger object is still a mystery, one that the Rosetta mission hopes to solve when the spacecraft gets closer. However, the lopsided comet will make things slightly more difficult for the second half of the mission. Once Rosetta reaches the comet and enters orbit around it, with a relative velocity of a few centimetres per second, the team will attempt to place a lander on the comet in November 2014. This will be done after spending a couple of months a mere 25 kilometres away, mapping and analysing the comet in great detail. The shape makes it more difficult than expected, as the two different parts of the comet may have different densities, leading to an irregular gravitational field. It will also be harder to comprehensively image a comet of this shape, and the number of feasible landing sites may be quite small. Nevertheless, the team remain confident that they will be able to pull off what has never been done before and land a probe, called Philae, onto the comet. If everything goes well, the lander will take data using the plethora of instruments it has on board, including cameras, an X-ray spectrometer, two evolved gas analyzers, and a radar-like probe for sounding out the interior of the nucleus. Both Philae and Rosetta will stay with the comet as it goes around the sun and back away from it, studying what happens. The mission is due to end in December 2015 after which its fate remains uncertain. More information about Rosetta can be found on the ESA website, and we also managed to interview the retiring mission director of Rosetta, Gerhard Schwem, at NAM 2014. So do look out for that in our NAM special edition. Thanks for that, Indy. Now we go back to Indy, who is interviewing Professor Elsia Abdallah about quantum field theory and how it applies to astronomy, including dark matter and dark energy. I'm with Professor Elsia Abdallah from the University of Sao Paulo. Hello, Elsia. Hello. Thank you for being with us. Could I just ask you to describe in a few words what your research involves and what you do on a daily basis? I've been working since many years with uh, quantum field theory. So I started with uh, elementary particles and models of uh, field theory. And uh, since uh, something like 10, 15 years, I've been interested in problems in gravity, cosmology, and, and all that. Uh, mainly in the recent years, I found a very interesting problem uh, which concerns to the dark part of the universe. So the universe is 95% uh, unknown, and uh, there is this question of uh, two-thirds of the universe being described by some very, very strange object called dark energy, which is a kind of repulsive in the very large scale, and uh, dark matter, which is uh, clumping, attracting matter, but which is basically unknown, and uh, I would like to know a bit more about these objects from the uh, standpoint of uh, field theory. For most of our listeners would think, if you start off in particle physics, how can you then shift to cosmology, you know, because it's two fields that seem to be at direct opposites, so could you... Maybe explain what the link would be, how you would get from particle physics to cosmology? Well, in fact, they are not so different in the sense that uh, all of them are describing basic interactions of the universe. So our aim is to have a physical description of the universe, which is unified from the very small to the very large. And uh, we know by experience that uh, this is uh, not only not impossible, but this is feasible and important because the early universe is actually described by quantum fields and actually the, the behavior of these quantum fields, they basically predict the uh, evolution of the universe and the history of the universe as a whole. So particle physics and cosmology are actually uh, very tightly related and they um, have a necessity of one another. They need one another to, to be completely uh, describable by the same kind of th physics. I see. That's really interesting. And so you mentioned that you're particularly interested in dark matter and indeed dark energy. Could you go into a bit more detail about these things and, and what scientists think they actually are? Because, of course, they have the name dark, so that means we don't really know, but, of course, there are theories. So could you maybe um, explain a bit about that? Yes. Uh, actually, the names are not very good because, in principle, energy and matter are basically the same thing. But uh, for historical reasons, they are called dark matter and dark energy for the following reasons. Uh, what is dark matter? It's a dark part of the universe, dark in the sense that it's not seen because this part does not interact 
with light and but it's is of the same kind of matter that we touch so it's actually different it's it's actually a fluid that we don't know what it is that we don't see and uh, that has no electric interaction so not being electrical means that we can pass through it and not feel it but we are attracted to it and uh, if we look at objects that uh, fly around our galaxy we see that they are attracted by the galaxy much more than uh, uh, what would we would expect from the uh, visible matter and uh, that points to an existence of an object a fluid or anything that attracts this has been predicted already 80 years ago and, and, and never touched or never directly observed but by the, its gravitational interaction and we call it dark matter for historical reasons it is presumably the, the content of one-third of the mass of the universe, or roughly speaking, one-third, one-fourth. Okay. Then we have the other part of, of the universe, which is more recent. It's also dark because we don't see it, but we feel its uh, presence by means of observing very distant objects, namely far away uh, supernovae that explode and uh, by which we can compute its acceleration and then we see that there is a part of the universe that in very simple words words it repels this uh, supernova it's it's actually not a repelling uh, behavior but in practice it's it's what we see that the universe is accelerating by means of the existence of a dark part also of the universe which uh, has this effect uh, it has a kind of pressure that pulls out uh, uh, expands the universe in an accelerated way it's uh, uh, like if you if you throw a stone in the air if you are hercules and th uh, throw with a, a very big force uh, it's going to go up but it's going to eventually fall down yeah. in the universe is uh, is different you throw a stone, if you are a Herculean <laughs> mythological uh, being, yeah. you throw something with a big, big force and then suddenly it goes out very fast and accelerating away from us. This is the effect of the so-called dark energy, which constitutes something roughly two-thirds of the universe. And so because we can't yet observe these things, uh, your work involves mainly building mathematical models and seeing how theoretically these, these dark energy, dark matter might interact with the rest of the universe. But how do you go about that? Because you have to start at some point, I'm assuming, but because it's a mathematical model, you can kind of start wherever you like. So could you explain maybe to our listeners how one goes about constructing a mathematical model of something that we've never seen? Uh, yes, this is actually the uh, the kind of description that we physicists are used to. This is the uh, the, the so-called scientific method. You 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 have some assumptions. So my assumptions are very general that I can describe the universe by mathematical objects. I I, I have a name for them. So let me call them quantum fields. But you, you can call it uh, anything you like. You can give a name to it. Okay. So I I use these objects to to build models and then I want to see the consequence of, of these models. So what I see as a consequence is that uh, I can, uh, given a model, describe the acceleration. I can, uh, uh, given the same model, describe the structure of the universe. I can uh, have the, the, the distribution of matter in the, in the universe. I can know the amount of, of uh, radiation that comes from a certain part of the universe. And these things I can compare to observations. So let's say I, 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 I know how these things influence the radiation, although they, they, they don't interact with um, with radiation directly, they influence how it, it it comes to us, and then I compute the difference between having this uh, dark matter and dark energy and not having them, and then I compare the observations and compare what I would have 
with interaction and without interaction or with uh, dark matter without dark matter with dark energy without dark energy and then i can conclude that my model is uh, a, a better description of the of the universe or not if it is a better description then i accept it as uh, a description of the universe which i give the name correct so uh -huh. I, I i improve my knowledge of the universe by means of this uh, we we could say indirect way, but uh, we scientists we think that this is the the only way of having descriptions. Uh, I mean, making assumptions, having proposals, uh, looking at the observations, mm -hmm. and concluding. Until the next set of data comes along, and then until the next <laughs> set of data, and then uh, the, the the next person that says, "Oh, look, your model is not quite correct. There's something missing, or there's something very wrong with it." So we have to accept and uh, start again from from scratch. Maybe from scratch, maybe improving the previous model. Coming back to the question of dark matter, correct me if I'm wrong, but if it's uh, something that, that doesn't interact with, with radiation or electromagnetic radiation or doesn't emit anything, will it ever be possible to, to truly sort of directly detect it? Uh, well, th this, this is a good question. No? I, we, we actually don't know. We make models, uh, again, no? we yeah. make models and yeah. uh, predict. But we cannot really say so much because we know so little. No? So we, the only thing we know for sure is that these objects, they do interact by means of gravity. So th th there is, to, to start with, one kind of interaction is gravitation. Uh, so gravity is a universal interaction. From point of view of uh, of physics, this is a wonderful interaction. That's what has led to uh, Newton's equations. Yeah. That's what's led to the uh, revolution of uh, general relativity yeah. and uh, Einstein theory of, uh, of of gravity. It's one problem that is very dear to us uh, physicists. Uh, maybe we do a new step uh, using, again, theory uh, of, uh, of, of gravity and its uh, modifications. Yeah, that is, a, that is a nice way of putting it. So what does the universe look like according to the, the most up-to-date models uh, at the moment? What are sort of the global properties? So you mentioned dark matter, dark energy, and then regular matter. Is that as far as we've got? Uh, that's as far as we got, and the description of the history of the universe is also very dear to us in in the sense that we predict, or if, if you like to be more precise, you predict the behavior of the universe. So you look far away and you you search for our past, for the past of the universe, looking far away. And uh, we conclude that uh, this is a universe that has an evolution that has lived up to up to now from uh, Big Bang, and uh, is a description that makes sense and is compatible with the observations. Moving on to a slightly different subject, uh, you're involved with the uh, Bingo project, I believe. So um, that's uh, a telescope project that's underway. And could you actually tell us a bit more about that project? So the Bingo project is is a project that aims to look at a, a very specific uh, snapshot of the universe. If you look at the hydrogen, it has a, a radio emission that is uh, very long lived. It takes a long time for 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 this uh, uh, radiation to to be produced, which is the twenty one centimeter line, which is co uh, the the comparison between the energy levels of the hydrogen when the the spins of the electron and proton are in the same same direction or different direction uh -huh. and since the uni the the hydrogen is uh, so common in the universe actually it's something like 70 to 80 percent of the mass of the visible universe then we can have a map a very detailed map of the universe if we, we know this line and uh, searching for such a line we know properties of the hydrogen distribution, which can give us a very detailed uh, map of what we have and what we expect that we can compare with our models that's quite new. It's uh, basically a new view of the universe, which is not just the radiation sent to us by the stars, but mm -hmm. also by the most inert matter 
the clouds distributed around the universe. So it's a new window of uh, information that is there, is so common and uh, so important at the same time for us to restrain our models. Right, that's that's really interesting. So this is the next step in the sort of endless cycle of data model data. So you want to get some new information. So it's a radio telescope, and where is it going to be built? Well, our plan is to build it in in uh, Latin America, more specifically in in a quarry in uh, in the north of Uruguay, uh, which has several good properties. It's uh, it's a quiet place from the point of view of uh, interference from uh, radio activities. Mm -hmm. Uruguay is a quite an quite an empty country where the electromagnetic pollution is uh, still absent. And also we have a good view of the South Pole, which can be taken as a standard in terms of uh, observation. So we observe the sky and at the same time we observe always the fixed point in the South Celestial Pole. And this, uh, this comparison can give us a very detailed map of the sky in a fixed direction with respect to the latitude of the of the earth so we are going to have a detailed map of the universe in that direction which would permit uh, also a detailed map of the matter distribution excellent well i hope that the uh, the project comes to to fruition and that you get all the data that you I like for so. your models <laughs> and uh, thank you very much for talking to us today it was a pleasure thanks for indy now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. And up first we have Fiona. Thanks, Adam. Um, okay, so my odd and end today uh, concerns the Russian space agency Roscosmos, who are in a bit of a flap at the moment because um, they've lost contact with one of their satellites. So Photon M4 is the name of the satellite, and they sent that up into space there a while ago. And um, the reason it's interesting is because of its contents. So residing on Photon M4 at the moment are five geckos, uh, one male and four females. And the reason they've been sent up there is to investigate their reproductive habits in zero-G conditions. So I think the reason Roscosmos thought this would be a fun thing to do uh, was because it's possible that someday humans will go off on long voyages into space and possibly reproduce while up in space and they, I, I think they just want to see you know what possible space babies might look like I guess <laughs> <laughs> it's a tiny bit of a stretch to use geckos isn't it, compared it, to yeah humans. I mean geckos lay eggs don't they I don't know why they chose geckos <laughs> and not like mice or something rabbits I, I don't know maybe they're starting with geckos and they'll then upgrade to gerbils and then chimps and then maybe humans who knows um, human pregnancy in space would be kind of interesting I guess I mean, I think it's stressful enough on Earth, isn't it? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it probably would be very interesting. So I think that's what they—that's what they're just wanting to look into. Just what would it be like, uh, and what would happen? I wonder if it's because geckos cling to stuff and they're less likely to freak out in zero g. Whereas if you put a mouse, and yeah, it just couldn't like walk on a surface, it might start it would having be a bit of a panic. Very frightened and probably have other things on its mind yes. besides reproduction. Um, <laughs> anyway, they're, they're, they're upset though because unfortunately they've lost uh, control of Photon M4. So while they can still monitor the geckos, um, they're still getting results back. They can't give the satellite any commands. So they were supposed to command it to come back to Earth in two months uh, because that's the time it'll take for all the geckos' food to run out. Uh, but it looks like they're not going to be able to do that, so uh, all the geckos are going to die. Ah, but they'll die happy. <laughs> <laughs> Cut that out if you like. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's uh, the, the, it. It's, it wouldn't be the first time that um, Russian space agencies have lost animals in space. Um, they they uh, they had another recent mission, I think, concerning newts, and uh, I, th I think. All the newts came back dead. Uh, none of the newts did, did any of them survive. Um, no, the majority of the newts uh, died due to the stresses of space. Um, and I think uh, another mission of theirs um, uh, that, that involved gerbils, all, all of which they lost as well. And uh, of course, famously, then there's Laika, who was the first animal to die in space, uh, um, also by the Russians. So uh, may maybe they should stop. <laughs> <laughs> 
maybe it's been done by other space agencies but we just don't hear about it. Yeah, yeah, maybe the Russians are just being very honest with us, in which case that's nice, we appreciate that, but at the same time I feel a bit sorry for all the poor martyred creatures who get sent up there. Apparently this experiment's not been done with humans, which I, for some reason, as it says there, it's a mistaken popular belief, mm. but I thought that they did want to do such an experiment with people, but apparently it's not happened. Apparently not. I mm. hadn't heard that, so... Uh, you can read all about it on Ars Technica. Um, uh, we'll post the link on the, on the website. So I'm going to talk about some living things in space as well, but in this case it's plants. Uh, it's a bonsai tree and a bunch of flowers, which were sent up to what doesn't quite qualify as officially being space, but pretty much on the edge of space, a height of about 28 kilometres. And they were sent up by an artist, so no particular scientific reason for doing this, but an artist uh, using big helium balloons. So they attached a little frame and hooked onto the frame. In one case was a bonsai tree, a 50-year-old bonsai tree, amazingly. And in the other case, a bunch of flowers, including lilies, dahlias and orchids. And up they went. And the equipment also had a camera on board, so it photographed them. And there's these amazing photographs. They are amazing, actually, especially the bonsai tree. Mm. That is very cool. Yeah. It's yes, like it's lovely. this complicated living thing set against the background of space and with the curve of the earth below it. We we associate trees with the earth, so it's it's quite bizarre to see one floating really high above it. It's, uh, it's really amazing. And you can almost imagine, if you forget that the little box is there, that it is actually a giant tree growing on the earth <laughs> as well. And it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that a company, I don't know if this is actually related, but a company from 2016 called Worldview Enterprises is going to offer balloon flights to the edge of space for £45,000. So quite a bit less than going up in a space plane when they come along. And they will go up to 30 kilometres. And apparently you'll be in a pressurised capsule with a bar on board. Well, when you got on a journey, the first thing you think is, I better have a drink and appreciate the view. <laughs> you will be able to do that. Um, and the other interesting thing is that these plants weren't actually recovered because apparently eventually the, b- the balloon bursts. And although they were on parachutes, they fell so far that they just blew somewhere that they haven't been able to find them. Yeah. Okay. Well, at least if I go on the hot air balloons up to, up to 30,000 feet and that happens to me, I can have a nice margarita on my way down. <laughs> 30,000 metres. 30,000 feet is nothing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, like, that's like a plane, 30,000 metres. And it made me wonder, actually, when I was a child and I had a helium balloon affair and I let it go by mistake and it flew up and I saw it go up, up and away out of sight, how high did it actually get before it came down? Because I used to imagine that maybe they just kept floating up and up and up forever. And then when I got a bit older, I thought, oh, maybe eventually like there's too much, it's too windy up there and they just kind of blow around and then they deflate and come back down. But according to at least these big helium balloons, they keep going up and up and up to sort of nearly 30 kilometres and then, for whatever reason, they burst. It used to really frighten me as a child. Uh, if I let a helium balloon go, I would see it going up and up and up and it would give me this kind of feeling of falling upwards. I think, well, the balloon can just randomly float up there. <gasps> Maybe I can. <laughs> and and uh, also, you know, I, like you, I, w- I wouldn't know uh, where it was going. And I used to think about that a lot and uh, have little seven-year-old existential crises because I didn't really know what was up there. <laughs> And this story also prompted a little recap of other things that have been floated up into space in similar circumstances. <laughs> right. So, for example, a Lego space shuttle. <laughs> some of these were like practice runs for weather balloons, and some were just people having a laugh, I think. And then there was one with sort of a, like a hamburger, or possibly a model hamburger, I'm not sure. Another one with like a little figurine of a person. If, if you're sending these things up into up into space, do you have to like tell the airports and stuff? Would it not be bad for planes if one of these? Because they're quite big, aren't they? Like I'm looking at one of the pictures here, and the yeah, balloon is yeah, like the size of people. Perhaps you have <laughs> to make sure it doesn't cross flight paths. And yeah, things. which I imagine would be pretty hard to do given you know wind and things. And mm-hmm. uh, or maybe they just don't pose a threat to planes. Maybe planes would just eat them up. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. And I wonder also whether the bonsai tree survived because it, 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 they think it came back down with a parachute. But what going up into a virtual vacuum and really low temperatures would do to it, I'm not too sure. I, 
I imagine it probably didn't survive. Like, um, I don't know. They're pretty hard wearing, aren't they? Well, uh, yeah. Trees. I mean, that one's what fifty years old, so it's yeah. not. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I can imagine it floating back to Earth, you know, and putting down its roots somewhere and just <laughs> carrying on. I like hope nothing happened. I hope someone found it. That would be nice. Okay, so for my odd and end, I found this article recently released by NASA. Uh, in it, they announced they've identified 101 distinct geysers uh, erupting on Saturn's moon Enceladus. So Enceladus is Saturn's sixth largest moon and is one of these ones that's covered in a thick crust of ice. And it's one of those solar system bodies that people usually point at as being uh, a potential habitable place for simple life forms. So the observation of these geysers comes from about seven years of data taken with the Cassini spacecraft, which has been orbiting Saturn. And the geysers all inhabit the southern polar region, uh, which has these so-called tiger stripe fractures going through a, a sort of a geological basin there. And the first sort of glimpse of, of anything erupting from the surface was nearly 10 years ago. And since then, there's been this question as to what's making the geysers erupt with a couple of competing theories. So one is that the heating is caused by the back and forth rubbing of the edges of the, the fractures uh, in the ice surface. They, they move back and forth due to the tidal forces caused by Saturn's gravity uh, on the surface, um, which would, so this, this rubbing would create friction, which would vaporize the ice and create some sort of uh, pluming water. And the other option is that the fractures are actually opening and closing. And when they're open, water from below can get to the surface. So it's known there's a liquid sea below the surface on Enceladus, which would provide the water to create the, the eruptions. And finally, astronomers believe they have the answer to this. So in 2010, there was some higher resolution thermal imaging data taken, and it, and it showed that the geysers are forming in the same places as small scale, and small scale is, is tens of meters, small scale hotspots. Now these hotspots are too small to be caused by the frictional rubbing of the, the edges of the of the fractures, so it means that the the release of water vapor from below the ice surface is the answer, which is is really interesting um, because it means that there is now a, a a way to study the makeup and content of the liquid water ocean below Enceladus's icy crust. If this is one of the habitable places or potentially habitable places in the solar system, and we can detect. Uh, water that is actually inhabiting the the ocean under the surface uh, that means we may be able to start looking for signatures of life so that's a really interesting result that's that's come out of a, a long mission 10 years of data but very interesting and, and I, I hope to see some well, I guess we all hope to see some developments of this in the in the next few years well from fountains of water on Enceladus to a fountain of knowledge here on earth here's Ian Morrison with the northern night sky the night sky for August 2014. Well, at least in August, the nights draw in a bit. You don't have to stay up quite so late to see the heavens, and it actually does get quite dark around midnight or so. So what can we see? Well, looking towards the south, high in the sky, is that lovely region containing the constellations of Cygnus the Swan, with its bright star Deneb, the small constellation Lyra, with its bright star Vega, and down below in Aquila is the bright star Altair. Those three stars make up what is called the Summer Triangle. And if you take the major stars of Cygnus, they make up what's called the Northern Cross. There's a very sweet little constellation down to the lower left of Cygnus, a little up to the left of Altair, called Delphinus the Dolphin, which looks quite pretty. As you move over, bit later in the evening, the great square of Pegasus is rising in the east. The four stars make up the square, the body of the winged horse, which is actually upside down as seen from northern latitudes. The top left-hand star of the square, called Alpharats, is actually Alpha Andromedae and is a way of leading you to the great nebula in Andromeda, M31. You simply start from Alpharats, you go one bright star to the left, curve up to the right a bit to the second bright star, turn right through 90 degrees, go one further brightish star, and the same distance again, and you should see this fuzzy glow. High overhead, a little bit to the north, is the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia, and down towards the horizon 
is Perseus, with its bright star, Murfak. Between the two, along the plain of the Milky Way, is a rather lovely region which contains two close open clusters. It's called the Perseus Double Cluster. It's a lovely object to observe in a small telescope. Well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter passed behind the Sun, that superior conjunction, on the 24th of July, so will not be visible in the early part of the month. However, by mid-month, should you have a low east-northeast horizon, one would just be able to see it before dawn at magnitude minus 1.8. By month's end, it will have risen to about 20 degrees above the horizon by 5.30 a.m. BSP. So although hindered somewhat by the atmosphere, early risers should be able to spot the equatorial belts across the 32 arc second disk and the four Galilean satellites as they weave their way around it. From the 14th to the 21st of August, Jupiter will lie within about four degrees of Venus. And I'll come back to that in one of the highlights. It will appear far less bright than Venus, as, though larger, it's seven times further away from the Sun and only receives about 2% of the sunlight that falls on Venus. Saturn is an evening planet. It lies in Libra near the wide double star Alpha Libri, falling in brightness a little from plus 0.5 to plus 0.6 magnitudes during the month. An hour after sunset, it will still be 20 degrees above the horizon, so we will be able to see the 17 arc second disk and the ring system around it, and perhaps with a reasonable telescope, you'll be able to see Titan, its largest satellite. Well, Mercury will be so low above the horizon this month, it'll be very difficult to spot, even with binoculars or a telescope. So, best not to try. What about Mars? As August begins, Mars lies midway between Spica and Alpha Libri, and moves eastwards from Virgo into Libra on the 10th. It shrinks from 7.7 .7 to 7 arc seconds in angular diameter, and at the same time its brightness falls a little from magnitude plus 0.4 to plus 0.6. It's best observed as darkness falls, but given its low elevation, it's unlikely that any details will be seen on its salmon pink surface. Finally, Venus. Venus rises in the east-northeast in the pre-dawn sky, but on the first is only about 20 degrees above the horizon by sunrise. On the far side of the sun, its disk, now almost fully lit, drops in angular size from 10.7 to 10.2 arc seconds during the month. But at the same time, the percentage of the disk which is illuminated increases from 82 to 97%. As a result, the effective area reflecting the sun's light stays almost constant, so the magnitude stays at minus 3.8 throughout the month. Venus moves from Gemini on the 11th to join Jupiter in Cancer before moving into Leo on the 27th. But by then, it'll only be about 14 degrees above the horizon at sunrise. Well, what highlights have we to look for this month? Well, on the night sky page of the Jodrellbank website, you'll find a chart to show you how to find the globular cluster in Hercules and the double-double star in Lyra. This, to binoculars, looks like a double star, but under good seeing conditions with a telescope, each of those stars is seen to be itself double. August is also a good month to observe Neptune with a small telescope. It comes into opposition, which is when it's nearest to the Earth, on the 29th of August. So it will be seen quite well both this month and next. Its magnitude is about plus 7.9. So it's easily spotted in binoculars lying in the constellation of Aquarius. And the chart on the night sky page shows you where to look. It rises to an elevation of about 27 degrees when it's due south. If you've got a telescope of 8 inches or more, in aperture and a dark transparent night, you may well even be possible to spot its moon Titan. August the 3rd, about an hour after sunset, we have the moon, Mars and Saturn. So looking southwest, you should be able to spot the moon lying between Mars at magnitude plus 0.4 to its lower right and Saturn magnitude plus 0.5 to its upper left. Given a low horizon in the southwest, 
You may also spot Spica in Virgo, down to the right of Mars. On August the 10th, the Moon is closest to the Earth as it can get, and that point is at 7pm that evening. However, it is also at full Moon just nine minutes later. It actually rises at 8.15 on the 10th, so that is as big in angular size, essentially, that we can ever, ever see at full moon. And it's called a mega moon or a super moon. In fact, compared to when the moon is furthest away from us at full moon, the diameter is 12% bigger. And that makes quite a difference in the overall area and hence in the brightness. So I do hope it's clear that night. It'll be a lovely thing to see. On the mornings of the 12th and 13th, of August, it might be worth having a look out for the Perseid meteor shower. Though sadly, this year the moon will be just past full, so its light will wash out the fainter meteors. But let's say within a half hour period, you should still see half a dozen or more. The Perseid meteors are produced by debris from the comet Swift Tuttle, and the peak is actually around midday on the 12th, so you've actually got a good chance to see it either on the 12th or the 13th. On August the 18th, before dawn, Venus and Jupiter will appear in the eastern sky just 12 arc minutes apart. That is pretty close. And they'll also lie just a couple of degrees below M44, an open cluster in Cancer, often called Prisipi. So that'll be a lovely thing to look for. Venus will be at magnitude minus 3.8, and it'll be up a little and a bit to the left of Jupiter, shining at magnitude minus 1.8. Around 5am, they will be just 5 degrees above the horizon, so a low horizon with pretty transparent skies will be needed. But if so, a pair of binoculars will see all three objects in one field, and it will make a great imaging opportunity. On August the 23rd, again about an hour before sunrise, you can spot Venus, Jupiter and a waning thin crescent moon. You'll need a good low eastern horizon though. I sometimes include on the night sky page things to observe on the moon, giving the dates when they're best seen, which is when the terminator lies fairly close, making the shadows longest. And on August the 4th and the 17th, it's possible to see well what is called the straight wall. It's actually a gentle scarp. And Sir Patrick Moore has said, neither is it a wall, nor is it straight. Finally, I might just mention that Cambridge University Press have just published my book called An Amateur's Guide to Observing and Imaging the Heavens. If you look it up, you'll find some very nice reviews, one by Stephen James O'Meara, who is certainly one of the world's greatest visual observers, and a second by Damien Peach, who is undoubtedly the world's best planetary imager. They both think it's okay, so perhaps it's all right. Thank you for listening. Thanks for that, Ian. And now for the Southern Hemisphere, here's Claire Bretherton. Kia ora, and welcome to the August Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. This month sees Scorpius and Sagittarius high overhead in our evening sky. Scorpius is our winter constellation and is easy to spot with the orange star Antares, which marks his heart, lying just east of the zenith. A curve of bright stars stretches out towards the right of this, forming his tail. Antares is a red supergiant star, with a radius more than 800 times that of the sun. If it were placed at the centre of our solar system, its surface would lie between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. The name Antares means rival of Mars because of its distinctive colour. This tells us that it is a cooler star than our sun at around 3,500 Kelvin. Here in New Zealand we don't have scorpions however, so we see this group of stars as something a little more familiar here in the southern Pacific. To Maui this group of stars is known as Temato Amaui, the fish hook of Maui. Maui used this hook to pull up a great fish out of the ocean, which became the North Island of New Zealand, Te Ika Maui. The red star is now known as Rehua and represents a drop of blood that Maui took from his nose to use as bait. Below Scorpius is an upside-down teapot shape formed from the brightest stars in Sagittarius. The broadest and brightest part of the Milky Way lies towards Scorpius and Sagittarius high in our eastern evening sky. 
We're very lucky here in the Southern Hemisphere that we look more towards the centre of our galaxy, providing a whole assortment of stunning nebulae and star clusters to observe. Lying along the tail of the Scorpion is NGC 6231, a bright cluster of stars which looks like a small comet. Estimated to be only 3.2 million years old and nearly 6,000 light-years away, if the cluster was placed at the same distance as the Pleiades, then some of its stars would be amongst the brightest in the nighttime sky. About halfway between the Scorpion Sting and the spout of the teapot is M7. This is an open cluster of stars, easily visible to the naked eye, and a lovely sight through a good pair of binoculars. M7 is thought to be around 980 light-years away and around 200 million years old, still pretty young in astronomical terms. Nearby and somewhat fainter, the Butterfly Cluster, or M6, is also well worth a look in binoculars. To the left of the teapot spout, and just about visible to the naked eye, is the Lagoon Nebula, or M8. This is a huge cloud of interstellar gas and dust where new stars are being formed. M8 is a great example of an H2 region, where the UV radiation from hot young stars is ionising the leftover hydrogen gas and causing it to glow. These emission nebulae often appear pink in colour photographs. Along with the nearby Trifid Nebula M20, the Lagoon Nebula is a good target for binoculars or a small telescope. The Trifid Nebula is an interesting object to look at as it combines both an emission and reflection nebula with an open cluster of stars. It was discovered by Charles Messier in 1764 and is famed for the three-lobed appearance which earned it its name. Reflection nebulae glow by reflecting and scattering light from the nearby stars. They often appear blue in colour as the scattering of blue light is more effective than that of red light. There are also a number of globular clusters in this part of the sky. These are large spherical clusters containing hundreds of thousands of ancient stars, dating back more than 12 billion years. Over 150 are found in the halo of the Milky Way, in the outskirts of our galaxy. The distribution of these clusters provided early evidence of the scale of the Milky Way and our position within it. The brightest globular cluster is M4, and this is also one of the easiest to find, lying just 1.3 degrees west of Antares. Appearing as a small fuzzy ball in binoculars or small telescopes, a slightly larger telescope will begin to pick out individual stars. Also in this region, near the top of the teapot, is M22. This was the first globular cluster ever discovered in 1665, and at just 10,000 light-years away, it is also one of the closest, making it well worth a look. From its bright centre in Sagittarius, the Milky Way stretches out east to west in our early evening. Along this path, we find the majority of the bright stars in our nighttime sky. In the north, just to the left of the Milky Way, is Vega, the fifth brightest star in the sky. Vega is about 25 light years away and 50 times brighter than the sun. It forms part of the constellation of Lyra, the lyre or harp. Opposite, in the southern sky, the second brightest star, Canopus, can be found in the constellation of Carina. This star is 310 light-years away and 15,000 times brighter than the sun. To Maori in Aotearoa, New Zealand, this star is Atutahi or Aotahi, which means to stand alone. Running back along the Milky Way towards Scorpius, we first pass the False and Diamond Crosses before arriving at Crux, the Southern Cross. The smallest of the 88 official constellations, Crux has become an icon of the southern sky. It has the appearance of a diamond kite shape of four bright stars, along with a fifth fainter star. To Maori, it is known as Te Punga, the anchor of Tamarati's Waka. Alpha Crucis is the twelfth brightest star in the sky and it appears to the unaided eye as a single star of magnitude 0.9. But small telescopes reveal it is in fact a double star with blue-white components of magnitudes 1.4 and 1.9. Nearby is NGC 4755, an open cluster of stars also known as the Jewel Box, named from Sir John Herschel's vivid description of the cluster as a casket of variously coloured precious stones. The cluster is about 6,500 light-years away and is rich and bright with the stars showing delicate colours accentuated by an orange-red supergiant. It can easily be seen with the naked eye, but binoculars and telescopes will reveal much more detail. Just to one side is a dark patch known as the Colsac Nebula. This is a cloud of interstellar dust and gas some 700 light-years away. It is so thick and dense that it obscures the light from more distant stars, appearing as a darkened area against the bright backdrop of the Milky Way. To Maori, it's known as Te Patiki, or the Flounder. 
Towards the east of Crux are the two bright pointer stars, Alpha and Beta Centauri, marking the front hooves of Centaurus the centaur. When we look away from the path of the Milky Way, the brightness and number of stars drops off rapidly. Mars and Saturn sit near to Spica, the brightest star in Virgo this month, with the orange star Arcturus below. The differences in colours are easily distinguished. Mars and Arcturus have a red-orange hue, while Spica is a brilliant blue-white and Saturn is yellow. Mars and Saturn will be at their closest on the 25th. Small telescopes will reveal Saturn's rings and largest moon Titan, looking like a small star around four ring diameters out from the planet. More powerful telescopes should reveal faint banding in the planet's atmosphere, along with gaps and variation in colour of the rings, as well as a number of smaller moons. This object, more than any other, will get a great response from first-time observers, as it really does look like it does in the pictures. Mars, on the other hand, will appear as a small red disk. It is getting fainter as we move away from it on our faster inner orbit. Also in the western sky is the planet Mercury. It will climb higher as the month progresses, setting one and a half hours after the sun by month's end. The crescent moon will be close by on the 27th. Brilliant Venus and Jupiter are in our morning sky and will be at their closest on the 18th, when there will be less than a full moon diameter between them. Thanks for listening into this month's Jodcast. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback. So, uh, we have no physical post, but via email we'd like to say thank you for all the Ask an Astronomer questions. On Facebook, Russ Jenkins said, Great show as usual, and nice to know that NASA is observing one of our nearest solar system bodies, the Earth. It's, that's personally, that's my nearest solar system body. I don't know about, about, <laughs> know about Russ. Um, and he also said, in reference to this craft that we talked about last episode called OCO2, he says, that acronym must have been chosen because it ends CO2. But the thing is that originally there was a spacecraft called OCO, but unfortunately it never made it into orbit. And Russ says, you have to wonder if someone didn't nobble the first observatory just to justify the two. Because, of course, OCO2, CO2 is carbon dioxide. So it's a conspiracy. Started here on the podcast. On Twitter, uh, thank you all for your retweets and for the follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Well, all that remains is to thank Professor Elsia Abdallah for the interview. The editors were Adam Everson, Claire Bretherton, Indigo Clerk and Mark Perver. The producer was George Bendo. Until next time, Jod on! on.